and bring us our Bible reading. Morning. Uh, so today's Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, which can be found on page 969 of the Table Bibles. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing our series in uh, the Ten Commandments, and we've come to uh, commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, just a few books I want to recommend uh, before I get going, uh, simply because uh, I want us to finish on a different note to book recommendations. Uh, this book has been very helpful for me as I've been preparing. It's not a Christian book. It's uh, a book by a, a feminist, uh, someone who was a liberal feminist, and she really writes, uh, as the title of the book suggests, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I'll refer to that as I go. Uh, then uh, a book for women, uh, Purity is Possible, How to Live Free of the Fantasy Trap. Uh, that comes recommended by Mim. I'm sure that is, means it's great. Uh, Every Man's uh, Battle, um, again, How to li Live a Sexually Pure Life as a Man. And then Divorce and Remarriage, uh, which uh, may be particularly um, uh, suitable for some, uh, but as I'll say as I go, reading books is no uh, substitute for talking with others and, and thinking through pastorally the, the situation that each of us are in, uh, and Mim and I, as well as others, are, are I'm sure uh, more than willing to talk to folk to help people think things through. But let's pray, shall we, as we come to what is a topic which, as I'm sure, stirs up all kinds of emotions and feelings in us, and so how much we need, how much I need, uh, the Lord's grace. So let's come to him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are our teacher from heaven this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, please, as our living Lord, would you speak to each and every one of us Thank you that you are clear in your teaching about marriage. Thank you that you are compassionate and forgiving, as we will see from your word. Please help us to grapple with both these things for your glory's sake. Amen. 
Well, it cannot have escaped our notice that we live in a culture that has cast off all restraint when it comes to our sexual behavior. With the advent of Playboy in the 1950s and the increase in pornography of late, it's not only seen as normal, but even extreme forms of pornography, violent pornography, are found to have been viewed even by primary school children. And the percentages are horrific, are they not, if you see in the media. The sexual revolution of the 1960s, which advocated sexual freedom, is really a return to paganism, the deification of our sexual desires. The next thing on the list of taboos to be broken is polyamory, if recent film releases are anything to go by. And it cannot have escaped our notice that we're encouraged to define ourselves and to find our identity in terms of sexuality and gender. I don't think any of us can be ignorant of that now, can we? I mean, you've talked about what's going on on the university campus. Woe betide anyone who challenges this. Following Freud, who is the, the new expert on these matters in our culture, any, any repression of our desires, whatever they may be, is bad for us. And those who suggest otherwise are oppressive, hateful, and evil. A, very, a person's very identity is being denied if we deny their right to live out their sexual feelings. Yet even in the secular world, questions are being raised about this. In her recent book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, Louise Perry, who is far from a Christian, has exposed the terrible consequences of the sexual revolution, particularly for women. And what does she argue? That marriage is the best option. After she said that sex must be taken seriously in chapter one and men and women are different in another chapter and that summoned desires are bad in another and consent is not enough and people are not products, she is clear that marriage is good. She quotes at the end of her book, which is really her conclusion, the marriage system that prevailed in the West up until recently was not perfect, nor was it easy for most people to conform to since it demanded high levels of tolerance and self-control. Where the critics, that's all the critics of the last 50 or 60 years since the, the sexual revolution, where the critics go wrong is in arguing that there is any better system. There isn't. So even a secular feminist is saying that marriage is best. Uh, she's far from being a Christian, and if you were to read the book, I'd probably give it an 18 rating. It doesn't hold back, but it, it reveals all the recent sociological and sexual research that's taken place in the last decade. See, what God has designed all along, even in a fallen world, that marriage between one man and one woman is the best, is not outside the, the modern and contemporary debate. But how are we to view ourselves as Christians at this moment in history with these issues of sex and sexuality destroying the church? How, how are we to relate to them with conviction about what God reveals as his design, 
and compassion on those who will be massively impacted by the sexual revolution and will be even further impacted in the years to come. How are we going to be a community that welcomes those who do claim to have gay or bi or trans or polyamorous or pansexual identities? How are we going to be genuinely compassionate to them? Whilst also remaining courageously convinced of the teaching of Jesus that forms of sexual activity outside marriage between one man and one woman are contrary to God's design. How can we have compassion and conviction? And it is so easy, isn't it, in the culture wars that invade the church, and believe me, I'm no stranger to them, it is so easy to be compassionate to the point of denying the truth as Jesus teaches it, or to lack compassion and be short of the full conviction so that all people hear is judgment. That didn't come out quite very clearly, did it? Uh, what I'm trying to c say is that there is a danger that Christians polarize between being compassionate and tolerant and being clear and courageous to keep the two together. Oh, it seems impossible, and we will be misunderstood one way or the other. But how are we going to do this? Well, I think this commandment shows us how. What is this commandment? Well, it's not just that you shall not commit adultery, is it? As we will see, the teaching of Jesus is, and you might guess this from last week if you were here, where I said, we are all murderers. We are all adulterers. We are all adulterers. In other words, if we're to hold to the teaching of Jesus on sex and marriage, his ethics, which are so high as we will see, we all fall short. It's not just some people out there, it's everyone in this room, me included. I mean, some of us may be very proud that we have not had sex outside marriage, that we have not been unfaithful in marriage, which of course are both by God's grace, and others of us may be painfully aware of our failings, either before marriage or during marriage. Others may be deeply ashamed of being sinned against or to battle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. If we are to be a welcoming community to all, convinced of what Jesus teaches, then we must see ourselves as adulterers. By which I don't mean that we have all been unfaithful before or during marriage. I'm just teaching what Jesus makes clear here. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Because the Lord commands faithfulness of heart to avoid hell. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is quoting from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and commandment number seven. But then he claims to have greater authority than that of Moses, because he understands the very heart from which this commandment came, the heart of God. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is not to suggest that women don't lust, but it's rightly targeted at men. Jesus teaches that adultery is not only to engage in sexual activity outside marriage, but lust. Lust 
is adultery. It's not just that lust leads to adultery, which it does. It's that lust in the heart is to break that commandment. It's so deadly, in fact, in a spiritual sense that it has to be amputated. According to Jesus, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, is Jesus advocating lopping off body parts to deal with the sins of the heart? No, of course he's not. He's using graphic language to communicate in a visceral sense how spiritually deadly lust is. Why? I mean, this bar is so... Do we not all fall short of this bar? I do. As Jen Welkin helpfully expands in her book that we're, we're working our way through, lust is a rejection of the image of God in another human being. Lust rebels against God, refusing to worship God and changes a human being into a commodity to be worshipped, to be used for self-gratification, an idol. We seek rest in an image rather than the Sabbath and in Jesus Christ. We steal what is not ours to take. We covet what is not ours to enjoy. To break one commandment is to break all ten. And there are ten deadly sins, not seven. And all these sins lead to hell. Just as in the Old Testament, any breaking of the Ten Commandments was a capital offense. It led to death. So any breaking of the Ten Commandments in the heart, according to Jesus, lead to hell. And so sin needs radical excision. Now, I'm, I'm no medic. Some of you here are far more medically qualified than I am. But I, I think that gangrene is deadly. I think gangrene's a bad thing. Uh, I guess it's clear that once set in, the, one of the ways, probably finally after antibiotic treatment and all that kind of thing, one of the ways of dealing with it is amputation. Jesus is saying that lust is similarly spiritually deadly. The imagery he uses is the same, is it not? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Be ruthless with this deadly sin. It leads not just to death, but to hell. But the problem, as Jesus has said, is in our hearts, isn't it? It's not in our eyes and our hands. And so as Rico Tice says in Christianity Explored, the knife can never go deep enough. If we lust, we are an adulterer, according to Jesus. Now, if this is the case, this changes the way that we might relate to one another who may have fallen sexually, because that is not just a sin that those people over there do, it's a sin we all commit every day. If it's a battle that we all face to differing degrees, men more than women, according to studies, some of us battle more or less than others, but we should expect this is a battle for all of us. It's not the case that there's some wayward Christians out there or in amongst us who battle with this and the rest do not. No. We are all adulterers. In different ways, yes. 
we should expect that we all need to encourage each other to be ruthless with ourselves to avoid this spiritual catastrophe. It, it means that it's quite normal to have family filters on our Wi-Fi's. If and when our children have phones, although that's probably a questionable wisdom decision, then screen time or blocking of certain apps or websites, so we need to be talking about that. Uh, but also, for all of us, it should be an accountability question that we ask each other, not necessarily over coffee afterwards, I would suggest is not a good idea, but in our prayer triplets or in the close relationships we have or in our single-sexed discipleship groups, not just how is your love life, but how is your lust life? How's the battle going? And it's not just men who struggle with this, but women also. As leaders in the church, as you know from our uh, church uh, members meeting, this is an area we seek to be accountable in. I need to be accountable. My elders and deacons need to be accountable. It includes accountability software. If we're all adulterers, because in all of us this is a battle, then this should be a normal talked about thing in church life. We want to avoid the danger, don't we, that we think that that's just a problem out there and that when people come in amongst our community and we don't talk about it and they're thinking, I've just come from a, an actively and promiscuous gay lifestyle maybe and now I'm in this church and they never talk about struggling with lust. They're not even trying to be accountable. I'm, I'm, I'm dying here. Or somebody who's come from a promiscuous lifestyle where they've let, let every sexual desire reign in their, their bodies and they're now trying to live the Christian life. If we were a community that never talked about it, never even thought about how we can support one another, well, is that going to go well? Or will we find, after a few months, they're just no longer with us? They're obviously a church that don't battle with this, don't struggle with this like I do. But equally, we don't want to sort of let ourselves off the hook, do we? If someone had gangrene or sepsis, you'd never say, well, it's, it's up to you, really, whether you deal with it. Here's a paracetamol. I'll pray for you. <laughs> no, get rid of it now. Go to A&E, because you will be dead soon unless you deal with it. That's the kind of image Jesus is giving us about this. Is he not? Am I, am I misreading this? Is that not what he's saying? Cut it off, gouge it out, get rid of it. It's so spiritually dangerous that we might say, oh, I just don't want to be too judgy. But a compassionate response recognizes both the spiritual danger and that we're all in the same boat. At different times in our lives, maybe, but we're all in the same boat. Now, that will help us to show compassion as Jesus showed compassion. He was sinless, was he not? He never lusted. He kept the perfect standards, but he wasn't puffed up by self-righteousness. Flip with me to John chapter 8, um, which you'll find on page 1073, if that helps us get there a bit quicker. I am conscious, uh, and I'm sorry that I... For some I go on too long, for some I, I, I'm really short, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be in the middle. So John chapter 8, verse 2. Now I know that this is not recognized in all texts, but I think it has all the hallmarks of an early tradition. A woman is caught in the act of adultery. Just, just think about what that means. 
caught in the act of adultery, brought into the temple courts, and the Pharisees bring her before Jesus, and they say, well, you know, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And they knew he was a Bible man, but they'd long stopped stoning adulterers. But that's what the Bible did say. And Jesus' genius response, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And we don't know whether she was caught in flagrante or whether she'd managed to sort of get her clothes on, uh, but Jesus clearly is not looking at her. He is writing on the ground, avoiding lust, maybe. Maybe that's reading too much in. Everybody goes away one by one. The older ones first. They knew they weren't without sin. And then Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus does not condemn this woman. He forgives her, as we see in many instances throughout Scripture. Yet he commands her to sin no more. Which leads us on to our second point. How can we fight sin in this area? Not just not committing actual adultery physically, but not lusting. Well, this leads us on to a second point. Set your hearts on your new identity in Christ. For if we're Christian here this morning, we have a deeper identity in Christ, more important than our sexuality, more important than our gender, our marital status, or our family circumstances. If we're Christians here this morning, we have a new identity from which to live. Let's turn forward to Colossians chapter 3. If somebody wants to shout out the page number when they get there, just to help us all get there. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. So, 1184, thank you. You see, for Christians, our conflict with the world is that we refused to make our identity our sexuality or our gender or our family circumstances. Our identity is in Christ. Look with me at verse 1. These are wonderful words. Since then, you, the Christians he's writing to in Colossae, have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, Paul is clear that for the Christian, we have been given a new life. We have been raised into a new life that we now have with Christ. We've been made alive with him. Our hearts are now set on things above. We're going to heaven. We're going to perfection. We're going to glory. And the one who's going to get us there is seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on him, not on earthly things. Why? Verse 3. For you died. Our earthly, sinful nature died when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all the punishment on all our sin in his body on the tree. And we died with him. And then we were raised with him. So we now have a new nature, a new life. And your life is now hidden 
with Christ in God. Can you can we get that? Can we get our heads around that? If we're a Christian here this morning, our life is not here on earth. It's hidden with Christ in God. That's where our true life is. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, if we've turned away from a life lived for ourselves, trusted in him, we have died with him. All the punishment, all the wrath that we rightly deserve, all the hell was endured by Jesus, by his sinless body being made sin, by his sinless soul being treated as if he were a rapist, an adulterer, and a paedophile. That's how he was treated by his heavenly father. God, in the person of Christ, endured all the punishment for every sexual sin that ever was or ever will be committed by his people. We died in him, and so we are now raised with him, and there is no doubt that we will appear with him in glory. He is our life. He is our identity. See, our identity is Christ and nothing else. It's not that those other things about us don't matter. The Bible is very clear about that, isn't it? You may have seen a series on TV called Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, Claire Foy or Bear Grylls or Andrew Lloyd. It's quite interesting. I don't know if, if anybody's watched them. And of course, looking back to our ancestors can give us an understanding of who we are, not least what our parents were like and how their, their characters, for good or ill, have an impact on us. But equally, knowledge of our parentage can exacerbate feelings of inevitable behavior, can it not? which is to chip off the old block. What was the old block like? Mm. And ultimately, we're children of Adam and Eve. We sin. And without Christ, we're slaves to sin. But a Christian can look back on an event that happened in history from which we are descended, included. We were there when Jesus died and rose again. And that defines our future because we are in him. We have an identity that is not defined by anything on earth, that's not defined by our feelings, or our sexual desires, or our marital status, or our children, or anything. We are defined by being united with Jesus Christ. He is our life. So we will appear with him in glory. So what does Paul say next? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now we have a new life to live. Now, the Bible is clear that desires for sex and food are not wrong, they are to be enjoyed within their God-given boundaries. Thanksgiving and self-control, marriage. Uh, we may feel it's impossible to have the self-control needed for marriage or the tolerance, as Louise Perry describes it. But with Christ, it is. He gives us the Holy Spirit to work in us the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, 
and self-control that we don't have naturally. I'm afraid I can't resist an Iron Man illustration. Um, it was just it just came to me as usually um, Marvel illustrations come to me when I'm scrabbling around for an illustration. <laughs> so forgive me if you're not into Marvel or you don't know what Iron Man is. Everybody know what Iron Man is? We know what Iron Man, yeah, okay. So for those not familiar with Iron Man of the Marvel films, there may be some, he has a power source that sort of fits into his heart that powers the iron suit that he wears uh, and flies about him, but also seems to sort of keep his heart going and his sort of blood supply so that when it starts to run out, his veins start to sort of go, well, wrong color. How that works, who knows. But what he needs is a, is a new power source. You know, he starts to flag, he needs a new power source. And becoming Christians, we're given God's power source, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to live for God, to fly to heavenly glory, if you'll forgive the, the metaphor. And unlike Iron Man, it can't be, he can't be vanquished. He's not going to die at the end game. This life is God's life. It's God's life in us. That's our identity. Christ in us. We've got to get our heads around this a bit more because if we're going to live with this conviction, this is the only conviction that Paul said, or it's not the only one, but it's the one that he uses to put to death, to, to lop off the lusts, to do whatever we need to do with sexual immorality and purity and lust and evil desires, to fight looking at porn or whatever it might be. This is our identity, not whether we are male or female, not whether we are married or single, not whether we're divorced or separated or widowed or heterosexual or homosexual or whatever. This is our identity. Now, would we guess this by our conversation? Would we guess that as we gather, we are celebrating our new identity in Christ or is our conversation sometimes just slipping away from that? So actually our identity is more about the fact that we have children, or the fact that we're married, or the fact that we're single, or widowed, or same-sex attracted, whatever it might be. Now this is not that we're to neglect those things, to neglect nuclear family. But our compassion for one another is to extend to one another through bonds that are stronger and more fundamental than our marital status or our battles with lust or whether we're divorced or separated or re remarried or whatever our children have turned out like because our identity is in something that is not earthly. We've got to be careful to say that we don't drift into dualism, that we kind of make this split between what is earthly and what is spiritual, because the Bible's clear that they're the same. But no, this is a future kind of thing. We will be given spiritual bodies in the new creation, and all lusts will be a thing of the past, because all sin will be a thing of the past, because we've died to it in Christ. I think this is vitally important if we're not to be a church, as some churches are, that are, are, are all about young families. And so people who come in who don't have children feel excluded. Or some churches are so much about students and getting coupled up 
that those who've been through the pain of divorce and have come out the other end and not quite sure what's happening just don't feel part of the community. How are we going to be a community that is convinced of the ethics of Jesus and full of compassion? Well, this needs to be our identity, does it not? I'm not primarily a husband and a father and a male and whatever other personality things I have, I'm fundamentally in Christ. Now, I, I'd like in many ways to, to leave it there, uh, but I do need, I think, to look at the other two verses, and I'm very, very conscious that uh, if we go back to Matthew um, chapter 5, these are particularly live verses for some of us, and so I just want to say I know that for some of us, this is a deeply personal and painful issue, and I can't hope to do this justice in the few minutes that I have left. Suffice it to say that Mim and I are committed to caring for those who've been divorced and helping you think through what the Bible teaches on remarriage. And here is one of the key texts in the question. So I'm just going to look at this particular text. I'm not going to go into the whole area of divorce and remarriage. I just want to explain why I understand these verses to teach that divorce and remarriage is what Jesus is teaching here. But in order to do so, I need to uh, flip back to Deuteronomy 24. So if you'd come with me to Deuteronomy 24. And it, it, may, it may be that this, we, we don't feel, is directly applicable to us, but it is applicable to us as a community. So we all need to, to understand this. Deuteronomy 24, beginning at verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again, after she has been defiled, that will be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now that's the background to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 and following. Sorry, I've got the wrong verses there, haven't I? Um, I'm in Mark, that's why I couldn't find it. Sorry, I need to get into Matthew's Gospel. <laughs> so in verse 31, it says, so Jesus is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. He's referring back to Deuteronomy 24, and the Pharisees were saying that uh, people could divorce their wives for any and every reason. But Jesus says, no. More is, is going on here than I have time to go into. But let's just look at what Jesus says in verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, divorce was not to be as the Pharisees were claiming for any and every reason. Jesus narrows the reasons down to one, sexual immorality, the Greek word being pornea, which is any sexual activity outside 
marriage. A marriage, according to Jesus, is to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman, a male and a female. And divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality makes her an adulteress. And remarriage is adultery. Now, Paul adds the reason of desertion in 1 Corinthians 7, so there's, there's other reasons. But some will say, well, isn't Jesus forbidding all remarriage here? Anyone who, divorces a divor anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, two things to say briefly. And I'm sorry it comes down to the Greek. But as is often the case, it, it, it does. Greek has no indefinite article. There is no A in Greek. So we can take the A out. And if I were to translate it literally, it would say this. And anyone who marries having been divorced woman commits adultery. Now, some commentators take Jesus to be referring to the woman divorced for reasons other than sexual immorality, and that's my reading of it. Others import the general principle that marriage is permanent and read Jesus to be forbidding all divorce and all marriage, uh, uh, remarriage. John Stott says this in, uh, about these verses, the only situation in which divorce and remarriage are possible without breaking the seventh commandment is when it has already been broken by some serious sexual sin. In this case, and in this case only, Jesus seems to have taught the divorce was permissible, or at least it could be obtained without the innocent party attracting the further stigma of adultery. In other words, John Stott's reading of this, and his Greek is far better than mine, is that this is an exception where divorce and remarriage are possible. But just as I close, those of us who are the innocent parties in the breakdown of a marriage, as described by Jesus here, are not being adulterous in seeking a remarriage. But life is never neat, is it? And issues are often complex, so please do seek the care and counsel of the church family if that's you. And the gospel of Jesus is all about the reconciliation of sinners to God and to each other. So, of course, whilst a divorce can be legitimate, this does not always mean that two professing Christians cannot be reconciled and remarried. And even if we've been the guilty party, we are not beyond the gracious and redeeming work of God, are we? As with King David, when confronted by his adultery and murder, he could write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus can say to us, as King David was assured, neither do I condemn you. Forgiveness is available for every sin. But he also says, go now and leave your life of sin. Let's just pray. I'm conscious that uh, that's a lot, uh, as is often the case. But we need to grapple with these issues, do we not? If we're to be a compassionate and convinced congregation, let's just pray. Lord, please, would you bring the comfort of the gospel to all our hearts? We all fail in this area. Please uh, forgive us. Please restore us. Please help us to leave the sins that we're so easily tempted into. 
Please help us to be a congregation, a community that is full of compassion uh, for sexual fa uh, failures like us all, but also clear and courageous about our identity and what Jesus teaches on marriage. Amen.